Amen. Let's just turn again to the uh, Psalm 11. And uh, we want to think about the words here in this portion of the Scripture. C.H. Spurgeon, in his Treasury of David, which is sort of a commentary or a uh, gathering together of commentaries on the Psalms, quotes from Charles Simeon uh, about the Psalms as a whole. And Charles Simeon, who's a commentator, said this. He said, the Psalms are a rich repository of experimental knowledge. David, different periods of his life, was placed in almost every different situation in which a believer, whether rich or poor, can be placed. And in these heavenly compositions, he delineates all the workings of his heart. He introduces to the sentiments and conduct of the various persons who were accessory either to his troubles or his joys, and thus sets before us a compendium of all that is in the hearts of men throughout the world. In other words, we have in the Psalms uh, really a repository of all that we could face, the different situations that we get into as the people of God. We uh, could hardly have an experience that is not uh, reflected to us in the Psalms, and it doesn't matter how we feel. Maybe we are full of joy, or maybe we are filled with the trials and the troubles of this life. We find accord always in the Psalms to the feelings of our heart. And I think that as we look at this particular chapter, this uh, Psalm here, we see something that afflicts the people of God in general and that is the place of trial. Now, you notice that the words he were penned by David, he is under some sort of persecution, probably from Saul here, when Saul was hunting him, when he was under the uh, place where he was being hunted down, and Saul was trying to have him slain, and there was great danger to Saul, or, or to David, and to his men. And we look at the words here, and while they are words that uh, speak of a particular uh, occasion and a particular circumstance in the life of Saul, I don't think, uh, hopefully not any of us have been hunted down the way that David was. But nevertheless, we can in general think about the persecution, the trials, the pressures that we face day by day as God's people. And I think even as we think of that, the thoughts here that are in the psalm harmonize with the feelings of our soul. And what a wonderful thing it is uh, that we recognize that God understands our trials and God understands our feelings. And so for a few minutes this evening, we just want to think about uh, the psalm here as he faces the situation that he is going through. Now, first of all, then, I want us just to look about or at the believer's temptation. Look at the first verse of the psalm. He says, In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Now, what's happening here? It seems as if David um, has had to flee here. He's fleeing like a frightened bird, or that the acquaintances of him are advising him, really, to flee 
as a frightened bird. Here he is, and he's under pressure, probably fleeing from Saul, and his acquaintances are saying to him, well, what you need to do is look after yourself. You need to uh, flee and make tracks. And David really is arguing against him here in the psalm. He's saying to them, but I trust in God. He's saying, well, why should I flee? Why should I give up? Why should I back down? Uh, God is my God. And his advice to his attentive friends was that he should stand firm. But we think of the advice that has been given here in this portion of Scripture and with which uh, David has been tempted. And it really reflects in many ways. It echoes the words maybe of our own friends. Uh, Aren't there times when we're tempted to give up in the midst of the work of God? Aren't there times when the work of God seems hard and the enemies are uh, in ascendancy and it seems as if it would be easier to give up and keep our heads down and to flee to the mountains and to not do, uh, not stand for God as we ought anymore. And maybe as we've gone on in life, we have fled as a bird to the mountain from the place of witness. Maybe it is that we don't witness for God as much as we used to do. Maybe we have fled to the mountains as far as prayer is concerned. Maybe our burden for prayer, particularly maybe our burden for revival, is not as deep, not as strong as once it was. We prayed every prayer meeting uh, that you would have come into. There was prayer for revival. There was crying to God. And maybe as the years have gone on and it seems as if our prayer has not been answered, we're tempted to flee to the mountain. Sometimes it's something of a backsliding spirit. Uh, uh, that we uh, think that we're going to flee from the mountain. Let's just give up. Let's not bother. That's what the temptation was for David here. But notice where the advice came from. It didn't come from his enemies. It came from his friends. It was David's friends. The commentators would tell us that the advice here was from David's friends. And they weren't doing it out of malice. They were doing it because they were trying to take into account uh, David's welfare. And they thought, well, he's better served by flight. They thought that they were looking after David's good, that this was good advice that they were giving him, that they were looking after what was going to be best for him. And you know, sometimes we get that kind of advice from our friends and they are looking after our best. They think that this would be best. Don't be so uh, adamant about the things of God. Don't be so staunch. Don't uh, be so stubborn about the things of God. Let it be bend a little to the uh, ways of the world and the ways of fashion. Bend a little way to these things. And he says you, you don't have to Uh, endure in the Lord's battlefield, but there comes a time when you need to flee. Don't mind uh, the the battle, but just look after yourself. That's really what they are saying here in this portion of Scripture. And of course, that is a great temptation. It is a subtle temptation, because we will know that those friends, they are 
thinking of our good. They're thinking of our welfare. They're not doing it out of malice or anything like that. And sometimes we get the advice, well, just take a back seat. Uh, Just uh, stand down uh, for a moment. But look at what uh, the psalmist says. He says, how say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? And it's almost as if the psalmist here is shocked. And it's subtle and it is plausible. And he, uh, he wonders, how can they say such a thing? Well, we think of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13. He said, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. There was a missionary many years ago by the name of uh, James Chalmers. He was a Scottish missionary. And he wrote after long years of difficulty, and uh, he had many trials on the mission field. But he said this. He said, recall the 21 years. Give me back all its experiences. Give me its shipwrecks. Give me its standings in the face of death. Give me its surrounded by savages with spears and clubs. Give it uh, to me back again uh, with spears flying about me, with club knocking me to the ground. Give it me back and I will still be your missionary. And there's a man who was going to stand. It didn't matter about what was taking place around him, but he was determined to stand for God. And how we need something of that kind of a, an attitude as we seek to serve the Lord day by day. So we see the believer's temptation to give up, take a back seat, uh, let's rest a little, but we recognize that there's no rest in the work of God. But not only do we see the believer's uh, temptation here, but I want you to see the believer's trial. Now look at verses 2 and 3. He says, For, the, for lo, the wicked bend their bow, They make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I want you to see that this is imminent danger. The warrior king here has been informed that the enemy's bow is bent, that the arrow is on the string, that the archer is about to shoot uh, privily, Uh, from a hidden vantage point. So there is imminent danger here. And we think of this uh, imminent danger that the man of God is in. And you see the subtlety of the enemy here in the uh, passage. They didn't stand in the open. It says there that they have privily uh, shot at the upright in heart. And the word privily, of course, just means Uh, secretly or in darkness or obscurity and you couldn't see them they had secreted themselves away so it wasn't obvious but there is this conspiracy and it has come to the point here where the uh, arrow is about to be shot and the enemy is about to work and we think of how men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil And how often it is that the enemy will come subtly. We know the subtlety 
The devil is a liar from the beginning, and he will privily shoot at the upright in heart. We often call that kind of working Jesuitical today because the Jesuits were past masters of this kind of subtlety and trying to work things so that uh, by deceit and by whispering in our hearts and how the devil comes in the same way. But it is an imminent danger here. He is in direct danger. The arrow is in the bow. The arrow is ready to be shot. But not only is it an imminent danger, but it is an immense danger. You think of the arrow there, and the arrow is sharp, and the arrow is an instrument of death. And it was an immense danger because the man of God here is uh, going to face uh, what was going to bring about his destruction. And how the enemy wants our destruction. It's not the enemy that we face in the work of God is not going to play by the rules. He is going to try and destroy the work of God. He wants to bring it to an end. And we recognize that today, and we ought to recognize that, because if we don't uh, recognize it, then we are in so much danger of taking the devil for granted or, un or underestimating what the devil wants to do. Make no mistake that the enemy would like to end the work of God, and that's what he is working at in this world in which we live. And he has his minions today who want to try and stop prayer in the public square and stop the preaching of the word in every way that he can. So we can see that this is an immense danger, but also it is an impairing danger in the sense, if you look at verse 3 there, he says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And this has always been the language of cowardly men. Here were the words that were being said to David, and they were saying, well, the foundations are gone. The foundations of uh, the scripture are gone. The moral foundations are gone. We can't build on a superstructure that is already gone. And you know, in many ways, we might be tempted to think the same thing today, that the foundations are gone. The moral foundations are gone. People today have been brought up with no idea about the moral law of God. They have no idea about the Bible's teaching. And that foundation in society has gone and what are we going to do? And sometimes we feel as if there's no hope. We're like the builders in the day of Nehemiah. You remember how the people of uh, Judah came and said, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there's much rubbish, so we cannot build the wall. And they were saying, well, we can't do that. We, we don't have the strength. We don't have the resources and, you, the only th and, and they were right in many ways. But the only thing is that when you argue like that, you have discounted God. You've forgotten about God. Our strength to do the task is not in our power or in our abilities, but it is in the Lord of hosts. We go hand in hand with him. And when we start talking about the fact that we're not able or that we're defeated or that there is no hope, then we have already, uh, as it were, dismissed God. 
The vocabulary of impossible is not part of the vocabulary of God's people because we trust in a God who is able to do the impossible. When there's a river we think is uncrossable and there's a mountain we can't tunnel through, God specializes in things thought impossible and he can do what no other can do. Uh, Former president of the United States, President Reagan, in his inaugural address uh, when he was first elected as president of the United States, uh, spoke about uh, a note, a statement found on the body of a found on the body of a young soldier in World War One, and he had written on the little piece of paper that he had, "America must win the war," and he said, "Therefore, I will fight cheerfully and to my utmost." as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. And you know, as we come in these days, we recognize that we need to have the same spirit as that American soldier in the First World War. We need that determination to serve the Lord with all of our heart. So we see the believer's temptation and the believer's trial. But then I want you to notice the believer's trust. Look now at verse 4. It says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. Now, in the opening verse of the psalm, you'll notice what he declared. He says, In the Lord put I my trust. Now, that's David's great affirmation here. This is David's great statement. And uh, he, he says uh, his friends have advised him, no matter um, how plausible, that he should give up, that he should flee to the mountain. But now he says, I'm not trusting in myself for my safety. He says the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Now, that phrase about the Lord being in his holy temple is one that is used a, a number of times in the Scriptures. But the fact that the Lord is in his holy temple would uh, intimate the fact that he is uh, our great high priest. We know that our Savior is our great high priest. But we know that in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, there was the place of atonement where the precious blood was brought and where it was sprinkled upon the mercy seat, so that when God would look upon the blood, he would have mercy upon us when the high priest entered in. We know that the uh, book of Hebrews tells us about the Lord Jesus going with his own blood, entering into the holiest uh, by the new and living way that had been opened up for him through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And we think of uh, how our Savior is our intercessor, and that is what he's meaning here. Sage Spurgeon, in the commentary on this verse, says, What plots can men devise which Jesus will not discover? Satan has doubtless desired to have us, that he might sift us as wheat, but Jesus is in the temple praying for us. And how can our faith fail? What attempts can the wicked make, make which Jehovah shall not behold. 
And what a wonderful statement that is. When we're tempted to flee, we recognize that we have a God in heaven and a God who's interceding for us. And while we are not able, we come upon the grounds and merits of the precious blood and we enter into his presence. Notice what the fourth verse says too about this intercessor. It says, his eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. Here's the eternal watcher, the one who never slumbers and never sleeps. And God uh, intently and narrowly inspects the situation. God has the situation summed up. God knows the end from the beginning. There is nothing hidden from God. And while the enemy here, the wicked bend their bow, and they come privily to shoot their arrows, while they do it in secret, and while we do not know all the conspiracies that are entered into against the people of God and the desires of men against the work of God, God does, and we recognize the God who is able to see all things. Notice what we read in verse 5. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, the Lord hates, hateth. So the Lord does try the righteous, but he comes against the wicked. There's a blessing upon God's people, but it was a great comfort to uh, David that the Lord was against the wicked. And then he did something else. He depended on the power of God. Look, he says here uh, in verse 4, the Lord's throne is in heaven. So not only is he in the temple, but he's on the throne. And the mention of the throne, of course, speaks of God's sovereignty and God's power. He brings things to pass. He can do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or think. You think of the children of Israel as they came to the banks of the Red Sea, nowhere to go. The land had shut them in. They were entangled in the land, and God opened a way. And when it seems to be darkest, God opens the way for us. The Lord is able to do mighty things for his people. So the best thing that we do in the midst of the trials, in the midst of the temptations, is to look to the Lord. The Lord is in his holy temple. He takes our prayers tonight and he brings them to the throne of his Father. He cleanses our prayers and he allows us to enter into his, uh, into his presence. And what a wonderful privilege it is for us as the people of God. Well, one more thing I want you to see in the psalm here, and that's the believer's uh, triumph. Look at uh, verse 7. Look at the last verse. It says, For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, his countenance doth behold the upright. So if we stand steadfast in the work of the Lord, if we don't give up, if we look to the Lord, if our trust is in the God who is on the throne and is in his holy temple, then we can experience the triumph and we are steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Notice 
what the, the text says here. It speaks about the nearness of God. What we want is that it says, His countenance doth behold the upright. So uh, here is God's smiling face always towards the upright. And it speaks of the fact that he's near. If we see his countenance, then he is near. And what a wonderful thing to know that the Lord is near. He's in the midst of his people. We think of those uh, wonderful uh, promises where two or three are met together in his name. There he is in the midst. We think of those passages that promise the Lord is with thee. The Lord's with us in the midst of it all. His countenance beholds the upright. He is there to bless us and to be with us, even in the midst of the difficulties. And here is um, David, and he's going through the difficulties. He's facing all of these things, but he knows that the Lord is with him. The Lord's holding him by the hand in the midst of all of this. A number of years ago, I went to uh, visit Blackness Castle in uh, Scotland, where many of the Covenanters were imprisoned. And it was said of John, uh, John Welch, who would have been, uh, if I'm right, uh, grand, um, uh, he was a connection of John Knox anyway. He was either his son-in-law or his grandson. Um, but he was summoned to the castle to appear, would have been his grandson of the Covenanters. But he was, he was uh, summoned to the castle, to uh, the court, from the castle to the court at Linlithgow. And he would have faced death uh, because many of the Covenanters were being put to death at that time. But as he walked uh, to the place where probably he was going to be condemned, he sang this psalm. And he said, in the old uh, metrical version, I trust in God. How dare ye then say thus, my soul, until flee hence as fast as any fowl and hide you in your hell. And my, what a wonderful thing that even in the day of trial when he was facing death, he said that God would hide him in his hell. So this is a psalm that speaks of steadfastness. In the midst of trials and temptations, we have a mighty God who looks down upon us, who is with us every step of the way. And may we rest in him and trust in him, even as we seek to serve the Lord in these days. May God surround us with his love and with his care and with his keeping. May God Write his word upon our hearts for his name's sake. Let's just unite together at the throne of grace and prayer. And the Lord has answered many prayers, even from the last time we were here. Many, uh, God has answered prayer in the salvation of the lost. And we do thank God for that. And we do pray that God will bless the meetings, bless um, the uh, Sunday school, the children's meeting, and all of the meetings in the incoming days that God will step in in mighty power and be with us. And do you remember those works there in England? And in many ways, they're small works, but yet they're faithful to God in the midst. And it was good to meet with those folks on uh, the Lord's Day. And we pray that God will bless them there 
in the middle of Suffolk, and that God will bless the going forth of his word. So let's just unite together, please, at the throne of grace in prayer, please. Our loving God and our gracious Father, we thank thee that we have been able to enter into thy presence tonight. We thank thee for the precious word of God to our souls. O God, we think of those who would advise us to flee as a bird to the mountain and to forget about the work of God, to take things easy. And Lord, it's a big temptation today. We recognize that we are in a minority. We saw in the paper yesterday those who were saying that Christianity has become a thing of the older generations, that the young people are no longer uh, going after the things of God. They are no longer attending church. Lord, they have taken on the world's propaganda. And, O oh, Father, we pray for the young people of our day and generation. We thank Thee for the work that has been done amongst the young people here tonight on a Friday evening on the Sunday school, the Bible class, and the junior youth. And we pray, our God, uh, the children's meeting, and we pray, that our God, that Thou wouldst continue to bless and to save souls. We do indeed rejoice in souls saved, and we do rejoice in what God has done. But Lord, we think of the multitudes out around us. We think of the children who are um, bereft of teaching as far as the things of God are concerned. And we'd ask Thee that Thou wouldst step in and power. We think, Lord, of many of our own lives, and Lord, we have been saved young in life. Uh, some came from uh, godly families. Some didn't come from godly families. But Lord, nevertheless, we thank Thee that Thou dost save us by Thy grace. And our Father, we pray that others might come to know that privilege of sins forgiven young in life. Lord, we pray that Thou wouldst bring in the young folks and the older folks. Lord, we ask Thee that Thou wouldst save whatever age may people be. But Lord, we pray that Thou wouldst speak, speak to hearts today and draw sinners to Thyself and add to the church such as should be saved. Build up the work of God. Bring in new families. O oh God, we pray that Thou wouldst strengthen us even in these days from on high. So Lord, Help us tonight, even as we pray. Help us as we cry unto thee. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen.